This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions, and my name is Stephen Bradford Long. Today I'm talking to Patrick Gothman. Patrick is a gay Christian blogger, and he writes powerfully on the topic of mandatory gay Christian celibacy. Now, he and I both come from a history of struggling to align our sexual orientations to the mandates of the church, and it was a deeply traumatizing experience for both of us. I've spent years trying to find writers who express the very unique pain of mandatory gay celibacy, and Patrick is one of the best. He is an incredibly talented communicator, and he exposes the deep, fault lines of empathy in the church's response to homosexuality. If you are listening to this and you happen to be straight, I invite you to imagine an alien world. I want you to imagine a world in which you are categorically forbidden from any kind of love with the opposite sex. If you are married or partnered, imagine that partnership being deemed fundamentally evil. Imagine being a teenager and being told that you are fundamentally broken for finding the opposite sex attractive and for wanting to build a life with someone. Most straight people never take the time to consider what it's like to live in this alternate reality. And as a result, the church's response to homosexuality is a fundamentally unjust and myopic one, blind to the humanity of gay people. Keep that alien universe in mind as you listen to Patrick talk. And I hope that it will begin to open your mind to the extraordinary harms of the traditional ethic on homosexuality. Now, the subject of gay celibacy is particularly interesting at this point in time because since the closing of Exodus International several years ago, the evangelical church has shifted away from ex-gay reparative therapy. Obvious that that just doesn't work. So the evangelical church is now moving on to celibacy, mandatory gay celibacy as the next best thing. And I think that this is just as destructive, just as deadly as ex-gay therapy. And I hope to convince you of that as well. So with that, I give you Patrick Gothman. So Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Stephen. So you recently wrote an article, and it's actually what got my attention. It's how I found you. Um, you wrote an article called, let me pull it up here, What It Is Like to Be Celibate, Christian, and Gay. And it was one of, I think, the best expressions of that very unique kind of agony that I personally lived through, trying to reconcile my sexual orientation with the church's teachings. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I've kind of spent the past several years of my life trying really hard to put that experience to words and just how painful it is and just how alienating it is. Um, and I think you did a pretty good job of that. So I, 
to to just kind of start off briefly, you were you're not a convert, you're a cradle Catholic. What was it like being raised in the Catholic Church and being gay? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for the kind words about the uh, the article. I I would say I grew up not even you know really realizing that there were uh, such things as as non Catholics. Uh, my my family was was you know very involved. I went to, to Catholic school for the first couple of years of, of elementary school, and um, it just felt like an essential part of of my family. And right about the time that I started uh, realizing that I had these sexual desires that kind of nobody else did, and that that put me on uh, the out the outsider track was right about the same time that I started realizing that, you know, not everybody is uh, Catholic. Not everybody kind of uh, finds religion the same way, and I was definitely stuck in a, uh, a, a devotion to my my family and just how much my my religion was tied up in uh, how I related to them and how I was uh, committed to to making them happy and to uh, being just a, a good son mm. a good brother so there were so there were kind of these two there were these multiple levels of your awakening. So there is the the realization that you're gay that you're not that you weren't like the other boys, but also the realization that there was there's a bigger world than Catholicism out there. Oh, for sure, yeah, uh, and that my my sexuality was going to disappoint all of them at some point. Right. When did you first realize you were gay? Uh, it was middle school. I I think I was. Uh, you know, I mean, just at the the time when I was I was starting to realize that I just wanted to be around other boys in a way that they didn't quite want to be around me. It wasn't explicitly sexual yet, but it was definitely an attraction there. Um, I and, totally get that. It's it's kind yeah. of this 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 magnetism, this this magnetic draw. For the company of, of boys that you find attractive and you can't even really explain why you find them attractive. It's like pre yeah, yeah, it's entirely. like this, it's... this pre-sexuality that will that would eventually evolve into sexuality. Yeah, it's funny. You hear people people talk about how uh, that you know, gay people wanting uh, all these rights, that it's really just about sex. And uh, you know, going back to the the very earliest uh, uh, awakenings or memories that I, I have around my sexuality. It, it, we use the term sexuality, but it, it wasn't explicitly sexual. It was, it was so much, uh, more of a, just a general, uh, longing and accompaniment to, uh, interact with, with, uh, with guys in a way that I, I didn't with the girls. So you eventually realized that you're gay, and then when did you realize that you had to be celibate? That came in high school. I was, uh, so I didn't come out to my folks until my junior year of high school. And it wasn't so much a, a coming out as a being found out. And I was uh, starting to experiment with boys, spent my my first night with a boy, and then came home and found out that, you know, my alibi had fallen through and 
I had to explain where I was and I was fumbling and, and pretty quickly my folks had had kind of put everything together and so you know I was asked hey are you are you gay and I said yeah yeah I am and it was at at that point uh, that religion and how it was so tied into my family kind of asserted itself in a in a way that I I certainly I, I wasn't ready for. I remember my my mom getting out the Catechism of the Catholic Church and and starting to to quote from it specifically on, on homosexuality and just being like, "Look, this is this is w- what is expected of you. Like, mm. what what do you say to that? How did that um, feel? It was it was miserable. Both because I knew I was already deeply upsetting them because I had stayed out all night and I was messing around and I was, you know, just uh, doing things that scared them and upset them that way. Mm, what what age was what age was that? So that was 16, yeah, 16. Okay. Um and I had uh just gotten up kind of enough hope that I could at least in in secret kind of uh feel a little bit normal and then all of a sudden this came uh bursting through and so then to have the the whole weight of my my family kind of come come crashing down and say you're you're gonna have to be celibate uh you know i kind of floundered and i was like well you know maybe the the church was wrong about galileo like what if it was it's wrong about this and i just kind of like was coming up with any excuse i can and my my mom was just like no that's Mm. that's not the case um, and so I was, you know, grounded for life and then I had to, to go see a therapist and, and I was like, well, you know, therapy sounds good. I, you know, this is obviously dysfunctional. What's ever happening here right now. So, uh, I'm down for that. I, but I made one stipulation. I said, I don't want it to be a Christian therapist. Um, I, I had heard enough about, uh, Christian therapists trying to, you know, change, people's sexuality is that that terrified me i was like if if therapy means someone who's going to listen to me and someone who will uh actually try and help my problems i said i'm down for that i will do it uh if it is someone who is going to come in with notions of who i am before listening to me and try and and change that uh then i'm out so my mom took a little bit of time and then she found somebody and she said okay here's the address uh, here's your appointment. Go ahead. And I was nervous, but looking forward to it. And I show up on the door and it says the lady's name, Catholic counselor right underneath it. Right. Um, and I was so mad. <laughs> of I'm so course. Mad. Um, but I, I realized that my, you know, my very freedom as a 16 year old was kind of hanging, hanging in the balance here. And so I, I went in and sat down extremely nice woman, uh, who was, uh, you know, I, over the the course of about a year's worth of uh, weekly counseling with her, she you know she did listen, she did cry with me, and she she didn't try to uh, change me, but she definitely came in with a lot of, um, you know, absent father theory, um, and that it was you know my family had caused me to be gay, and maybe if I could just. Uh, spend more time with my dad and get some quality time in there. Things might turn around. And uh, I, I had the exact same thing. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't sent to a therapist. Um, I wasn't sent to a therapist, but I 
I did go to like support groups. I was in Christian circles that really strongly believed that. And so I received a lot of prayer ministry. I went through deliverance ministry and, and kind of taught kind of pastoral counseling with various ministers, all based on this idea that my father was absent, my mother was overbearing, or my father neglected me in some way. And and the end result was that it actually cultivated a lot of needless resentment for my parents that was undeserved because my parents were actually mm-hmm. great parents and and it ended up yeah, same for me. really turning me against my parents in, in a lot of ways. And it's taken me years to kind of repair that. Yeah, I remember you know, having these thoughts after going through this therapy of like, you know, basically just because my dad works hard that, you know, and every now and then we'll, we'll stay a little bit later at the office and everything that like he had messed me up for life and, and really, really holding it against him for all of high school. Oh yeah, exactly. Me too. And, And you know, it really is incredible how, when you're given an explanation for why this is a thing in your life, why, you know, when you're in a, in a religious setting and you're gay, it's incredible the explanations we come up to explain why we're gay. And, yeah. and when we're presented a theory, we'll literally find any detail to try to fit with that theory <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and even go so far as to make shit up in order to, to make it work. So you, so, so basically celibacy was your option from the very beginning. That was the option. It was, it was the, well, it was definitely the only option. My dad will say now, um, Hey, if you, you know, if you had said to me, uh, I don't buy into the, what the church is saying, I'm going to date boys. I'm going to do that, that he would have been disappointed, but kind of gone along with it. He wasn't going to like kick me out of the house or anything like that. Um, all I can say is at the time it it didn't feel like that. That uh, there was just this overwhelming sense that if I was going to be a part of the family, I would have to be celibate. And certainly it was clear from the church's standpoint that if I wanted to be Catholic, I would have to be celibate. Right. Yeah. No. I I totally get that. My my experience was for me. I I grew up in an evangelical Presbyterian charismatic setting. And so for me, the only option was ex-gay. I knew what ex-gay was before I knew what gay was. And for those who don't know, ex-gay is the belief that through prayer, therapy, so on and so forth, you can change your sexual orientation and or God can change your sexual orientation. And so that was my, that was my only option. And really I only came to kind of mandatory gay celibacy after that had failed for me after several years of trying the the ex-gay thing and it just did not work and uh you know I so I started the ex-gay stuff when I was 16 17 and it wasn't until I would say I was about 20 when I I looked around and I looked at my at the leaders and the ex-gay community and I looked at my mentors, one particular mentor who who was kind of a big name in the ex-gay world and he'd written a book and was leading conferences and and I looked at him and realized and actually one time I I asked him point blank, "Are you still attracted to men?" and he said, "Well, <laughs> well, yeah, of course." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "You mean you've been you've been in this for so many decades and you're still not cured?" And he said, oh, no, it's a process. Right. It, and but 
but that made me doubt everything and then it was right about the time when i was 20 when i i just realized it isn't working and then through college i i finally came to this um conclusion that well you know i can't change my sexuality but i have to um but I'm going to have to live celibate for the rest of my life. Can I ask you a question about the the X Game movement? Yes, absolutely. The, so, you know, setting aside the leaders of the movement for whom they they kind of had a necessity to be public about, hey, I I you know I I have these homosexual feelings, or I used to be gay, or however they're phrasing it. At least yes. for you, when they were bringing you into it, did they did they push you or ask it for it to be public? Um, in your own life, like, did they, did they say, "Hey, we want a bunch of people praying for you because that's how this is going to get fixed"? So you're going to have to tell a bunch of people that you're, or you should tell a bunch of people that you're gay so that they pray for your your healing. Or was it still kind of a sense of uh, shame and 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 silence around it? Well, you know, it, what's really interesting and. You know, I'm I'm never one to really praise the X gay movement. I think that it's done enormous damage. <laughs> you know, I kind of spent my entire, I've kind of spent my entire twenties trying to recover from it. But one thing that they have done, that they did do, was that they were kind of the first stepping stone for the evangelical church back in the '80s and back in the '70s and '80s and going into the '90s and early 2000s. I mean, they were really because before them nobody talked about being gay nobody at all and so it really was kind of this as misguided and awful and i think objectively evil as it has turned out to be it really it really was kind of the first step for the church to talk about it or for the evangelical church to talk about it and so and did they did they ask you to talk about it um no they they never it was they always they always respected my privacy they okay. never had they never required me to talk about it but i very willingly talked about it i mean i was a missionary with youth with a mission and i traveled around with my base and talked gave my testimony as someone who had been you know re, who had re, uh, been saved from the homosexual lifestyle and uh yeah and so that's what i did it gave me the ex gay movement gave me a freedom to talk about it in a way that my community could accept it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah, and and that doesn't excuse it in any way. No, 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 no. But that makes sense. I know for for me, the because from the you know right out of the gate, it was you're gonna be celibate if you're gonna be a, a, a an upstanding member of the the, the community, the church, everything. Uh, it was it was very quickly shrouded in in silence and uh, this expectancy that it, you know really it's it's private and if you're gonna talk about it that's that's embarrassing and mm. we'll we'll bring some shame to the family and bring some shame to you know I mean because my my mom is getting the 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 same message I feel I feel terrible about this as well you know like the not only was I getting the message that uh my my dad is too distant my mom is too overbearing but now if that becomes public everybody gets to know that they messed up with their their oldest child yeah as well. that, that they were insuff that 
that they were insufficient parents. Right. Um, so in your article, you, you start out this article by saying, um, the Catholic church I grew up in has two fundamental, has two foundational principles when it comes to gay people. One, you must treat us as equals. Two, you must insist that we are broken in a way no other humans are. And you write, I have yet to meet a person who is actually willing or able to live out both of these principles. Either they stop trying to treat me like the rest of their friends, number one, or they stop thinking I'm intrinsically disordered, number two. So this sheds light on something that I've observed but never really put to words is that I think the 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 church's teaching on homosexuality puts people in this place of cognitive dissonance where either they have to see us as as broken in a way no other human being is, which then raises a challenge for them of, well, how do they respond to that? And how do they, how do they actually respond to us as if we're normal <laughs> and, and in a loving way? And, and so it creates this cognitive dissonance where either they, they fully embrace you as a human being or they, uh, they detach from you. Yeah, that, you know, that passage came out of, it was an attempt to explain the, the passages of the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church that my mom, you know, first introduced to, to me a dec over a decade ago. And in saying that, you know, the, the first principle is that your sexuality is broken, but not in the way that other people's sexuality is generically broken and we're all, you know, sinners and original sin has, has, has taken root and uh, that there's something, something different about the way a homosexual's sexuality just operates and it's, it's broken. But then at the same time, they didn't really do anything to, to choose that. It's not as though, uh, you know, it's not it's not quite like lust or or like jealousy or, or some other way that other people's sexuality can be influenced by sin. So, you know, since they didn't really choose it, you know, we got to say that you can't discriminate against uh, gay people. In other yes. words, you can't you can't treat them differently. They have to be, you know, welcome yeah. to a, a full life within the church, which leaves anybody, at least, you know, Catholics that are trying to uh be faithful members of the church and take those passages seriously. Uh, like you said, in kind of this awkward situation where, you know, you got to be able to say to uh, the members of your, your church that uh, are gay, that, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't uh, stand by, or I don't approve of your, uh, your, you know, behavior. If it is uh, homosexual. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I still want to be your friend. I still want everything to go on like like normal. And yeah, uh, this, and pretend that this, this whole... isn't. Yeah, pretend that this this weird belief that you are fundamentally broken in a way that I am not doesn't doesn't matter. Which and I yeah, and I, I sympathize with uh, anybody who is straight and trying to make sense of that because yes what do you what do you do when you're told from an extremely authoritative source that you these people's sexuality is 
you know, inherently disordered and fundamentally flawed. Like, do you do you let those people around your kids? Do you let them become teachers? Do you let them, um, you know, become spokesmen and 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 big people within in the church? That's that's hard because you're being told. I mean, we all know that when people's sexuality goes awry, it can go awry extremely badly. So. What do you, how, how do you let, and how do you incorporate people who are inherently disordered become a part of the, the daily life of your church? And, and where that, that uh, desire to kind of write about it in this article came from was I, I got an invitation to a friend's wedding and I realized that I've, I've kind of reached an age now where uh, you know, pretty much almost all of my friends are are uh, married off and they are also disappearing at the same time. Like the yeah. my my active friendships with with everybody um, that I, I grew up with in my church um, have have pretty much all disappeared except for with the people who I came out to and they said, oh, we never, you know, that's no big deal. We we never agreed with the church anyway. Like, we support you. We hope you, you know, find a great guy. We want you to get married. That's beautiful. You know, viva la revolucion. And I was, <laughs> I was kind of, you know, I, I initially when I came out and I started telling people within my church, hey, I'm gay and I'm going to be dating guys. I'm not going to be doing the celibacy thing. When had, was that, by the way? When when did you give up the celibacy thing? It was, a, and by uh, giving up, I don't assume <laughs> that you were suddenly, you know, on grinder sleeping around. Maybe you were. I don't know. Doesn't sure. really matter. No, but I, <laughs> we can. <laughs> by the way, while we're we're on that subject, when we say giving up celibacy, that doesn't mean uh, sleeping with a different person every weekend. Just just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah. No, just giving up the, the commitment to lifelong celibacy. To lifelong celibacy. And so it means opening the door to a future committed monogamous relationship, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was it was a slow process. I began uh, sure. telling people, uh, you know, initially it was telling uh members of, of my family and then it was telling uh you know close friends and then kind of putting it out there a little bit louder on the the internet and just kind of saying hey uh, i don't really care if anybody else knows or doesn't know but if you're interested this is a thing now and it was uh you know probably around 2015 or so okay. that that i had reached the stage where i was like hey anybody else who even cares it's out there now um I was really concerned about uh, it not getting out before everyone in my family knew. And one thing that my father had requested years ago was that uh, my youngest brother not be uh, made aware of my sexuality until he felt that he was sexually ready for that, you know, kind of out of fear of, you know, well, what if, you know, it's contagious or something. What and if so, he catches the gay? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it spreads okay. and, and, and who knows how it spreads. So, you know, just keep it under, under locks for a while. 
No, I... It was... So that was... I had to wait until my brother turned uh, 18 until um, I... You know, I could have told him earlier, but uh, I was always trying to do this in a way that brought my family along in the most supportive way possible. Um, I totally understand some people who, when they come out, you know, they, they know that their parents are, are not going, you know, don't really have much of a shot at, at being supportive. And so it's kind of a, hey, this is me and take it or leave it. And, and they kind of, you know, do their thing from there. Uh, for me, I always took the perspective of I would so much rather have my mom on my side with this than her kind of fighting against me or indifferent. Um, so I failed a lot at it because I, you know, I reached my own limitations, but I often would try to um, deal with my sexuality in a way that was kind of within uh, the limits of that she put on um, especially yeah. when it came to the sort of coming out process. That takes a lot of uh, strength and integrity. That w that was um, that kind of bond with family, even in the midst of this. That was not my experience. I mean, I and I, I've made a rule to not talk about my family online, and so I don't, I don't, I don't, I never talk about my family online either in the podcast or in the blog or in social media. And so I just, you know, kind of out of respect for them, but yeah, that, that was not my experience at all. And so I'm, I'm impressed that you were able to maintain that. Talking about my family is something that I am trying to navigate and figure out right now, because on the one hand, it's such an essential part of my story. And so if I'm going to tell, Hey, this is why it took me close to a decade to come out of the closet you know, sure. it's so much of that is wrapped up in, in my family. Um, at the same time, you know, when I say, hey, my dad said I, I can't even tell anyone else or I can't tell my brother and thus I can't really tell anybody else because it'll get back to my brother about my sexuality until he's 18. You know, that's, that's kind of trashing him in a, in a way. And, and I've, I've come to try and understand and, and be a lot more sympathetic to my dad's position um, sure. as, as the years have, have gone on, but, um, I know that there are other people in that position and so it's helpful to talk about it, but it, it, it also is, is certainly it's hard for my family. I can imagine. Yeah. And, um, so, so this is maybe a personal question, but it's one that I am just curious about because of my own experience. Did you find the mandate for gay celibacy aggravated or or made you more prone to acting out sexually or or did you toe the religious line pretty well or did you know did you did you walk what you believed i didn't do a whole lot of active uh meeting up with guys or um sure you know uh flirtation or, or anything like that i say i would say i did a pretty good job of once i had decided hey i'm gonna give this celibacy thing a, a shot i i think i did toe toe the line um sure publicly you know the i would say part of the the, the consequence of that was a a 
pretty substantial uh, reliance on on pornography as a uh, and uh, like an outlet uh, because I was I was trying to be basically asexual in in public um, and uh, you know my 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 outlet for that was uh, to kind of you know let off steam in private basically yeah no I totally understand you use the word asexual trying to be asexual and that is what I had to do where I had to shut down my sexuality so much that there were even weeks at a time where I, I, I mean, I got really good at it. I am, I am a master uh, suppressor, you know, right. I, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm really good at it. I, and it, I, there were, there were whole seasons when I, I just felt like an asexual person, uh, you know, nothing wrong with asexual people. They're real and they're out there, but I'm not one of them. And, um, it, and it wasn't until after I gave up side B, you know, oh, well, after I gave up celibate life, that suddenly there was this explosion of sex, of, of sexual energy. And uh, my life fell apart, my faith fell apart, and my, my mood fell apart, my mental health fell apart. It, it's like, I was fighting so hard to keep this thing together. I was fighting so hard to to hold it all together and it was killing me and i know that if i kept going i it would have really killed i mean i was deeply yeah. suicidal yeah. and deeply disconnected because you know what i've learned about love is that it's an ecosystem and that when i try to shut down my capacity for sexual love romantic love partnership love i'm also shutting down my capacity for friendship creativity and and uh good love with with male friends of any kind friends of any kind period but especially male friends yeah and i was shutting all of that down and so i not only was i deeply um torn i was also deeply isolated and i had a great community i had i but i i could never reach them i could never touch them i could never emotionally engage because i was so shut down and that was the consequence of of that uh, that was the consequence of celibacy. And then when I did finally give it up because it felt like it was between my life or being open to a partnership, um, it wasn't about ideology anymore. It wasn't about theology. It was about whether I live or die. It, it really got yeah. to that point. It, was, right. it got to the point where I was like, I do not have the luxury anymore to debate. I don't have the luxury anymore to pontificate from uh, an I've theological ivory tower over whether this is right or wrong. This is my life right now. And, uh, I got to choose, um, to let this go or else it's going to eat me alive. And yeah, that's something that's familiar to me as well. Yeah. And, and so I let it go and it was like, I, I've been fighting so hard to keep it together for so long the collapse happened and it was a direct result of all the self-loathing all the years of self-hatred all the and and um and so you know i was i was sleeping with a different guy every friday saturday and sunday and and i was grieving for my relationship with the church i was grieving for 
my faith because it felt like my faith was falling apart. And I, and I look back and I realize all of that was there. That brokenness was already there. It was what had been built up over years. And then finally I, I had to confront it and it just destroyed me. I think the insidious thing about asking celibacy of a gay person is not just that you end up, um, with this requirement of like, hey, please don't kiss any boys, but also your relationship with women is uh, is clamped down on in a way uh, that that is abnormal as well. I know it, mm, that's where yeah. the, this kind of asexuality comes from because it's 100% natural and understandable that... Um, people in your your church and your friends and everybody is going to say hey you're you know about that age what do you say we start hooking you up with some people and we yeah. see if uh if anybody people still try to do that with me people still try to do that with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i mean everybody's got a a, a daughter a, a a friend's daughter somebody certainly my friends i having been in the seminary i was uh, I was looked at as this kind of like you know prime example of of what what a Catholic man should be in the parish. Um, mm. There were plenty of of friends that I had who would say out loud that you know I want a former seminarian for uh, a boyfriend because <laughs> they were know, sought after. They, yeah, the, the idea was hey you've you've seriously considered you know giving your life to to god and the 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 church you know you'll you'll be a a great type of uh person for your great husband material and uh, oh dear i think that there is this fetishizing of of priests and monks which is very interesting but anyway go on that's another topic we can talk yeah no it's okay um yeah and so you you end up with this you know, I mean, there was certainly a time when I was, uh, before joining seminary, when I would date girls in order to try and fit in and just mask being being gay. Um, and, and then that stopped after I got out of seminary and I was committed to being just a celibate single person. And I decided that I, I wouldn't date any girls because that's misleading but i wasn't going to date any boys because that's horrible and so i was left with how do you be a active member of the the church who um is going to turn every single girl who is interested down but you can't tell them why so like they're great people but you have to actually make up faults for them in order to to get out of of any in order to get out of that and 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 in order to make it seem normal in some way and so my excuse was always oh i'm a music major i'm i'm i said oh i'm married to the piano i don't have time i don't have time for a relationship i have music i need and and for the first couple of years i was able to be like oh i just got out of the seminary i don't want to like jump in that's you know give me some time to readjust and everything but but that quickly wore out um and and i had to and it, it was it was 
similar to what you were saying earlier, it was just, it was torturing me inside. I, I was dealing with major bouts of, of depression and was reaching a point where I knew in my heart, like, this is unsustainable and I will not be able to go on pretending to, to be a straight person, but without any ability to actually have any kind of human contact and love that, that gives that the, the, the kind of, you know, meaning and purpose uh, that everyone else finds so fulfilling. You know, one of the ways that I, and I've, and I've mentioned this in the podcast before, I, I think I brought this up with Matt Langston when I was, when, in, in our read through of the Nashville statement. One of the ways that I try to put it to people, because there is this genuine breakdown of empathy here, and I don't really know why that breakdown exists, but there's this breakdown of empathy for straight people in regards to gay celibacy and, and what they're requiring of gay celibacy. And there is very much this emphasis on individual stories making it work. And I mean, I'm sure you know individual gay people who make it work, and I know individual gay people who make celibacy work, and they're great, and they live full lives, and I really admire them and respect them, and they're great people. However, what I try to communicate is it is incredibly myopic to focus on a small handful of stories that make it work to the neglect of an entire society, an entire global community. And what are the consequences of the church's teachings, both the evangelical church and the Catholic church, you know, basically uh, traditional Christianity as a whole, what are the consequences of that, of not affirming gay relationships? What is that? What are the effects of that on literally a population the size of a small country? And I, I have yet to hear a good answer to that because I think what it creates is, uh, is a breakdown. I think it creates rage. I think it creates... Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm always afraid that I'll get flack for saying this, but I'm always, I, I'm afraid that, that it creates a culture of libertinism and that the church is in a strange position of encouraging a culture that disrespects its own sexuality and that is therefore what gives rise to things like the HIV virus, that is therefore what gives rise to abusive behavior that is therefore what gives rise to all of these things that conservatives then point to and say, see, gays are fundamentally less than, gays are fundamentally broken. Uh, no, they aren't. We aren't. The reality is that a lot of that dysfunction arises precisely because for centuries, secure attachments within this community have not been supported. And when those secure attachments are not supported, human sexuality is a force of nature and it will find a way to express itself. And if we don't give it a safe and loving space to do that, then it, it will hurt people. And that's just, does that make sense is, is what I'm saying? Entirely. I think, uh, I think especially within the, the Catholic church and, and Orthodox traditions, but I, I see it broader within Christianity, uh, there's a kind of fetishization of suffering. 
and the idea that you know well you know it it really looks hard that these homosexuals are going to have to be celibate but you know hard things are good in christianity they bring about beautiful things and so you know what's what's so different about that than saying you know i don't know the person with a really you know terrible form of cancer can't take their own life or something like that you know like yes it's 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 hard but it's it's also kind of beautiful and and you know what i would always come back to uh when when talking to people who said, you know, hey, look, celibacy is, is looks miserable, you know, but it's it's kind of kind of you know beautiful that you're giving your your life to God like this. Um, I yeah, would say, there's well, this hero so worship. There is, um, and but at least I've I've found that there's because you've got this tension of like you know but you're also really broken they don't quite know how to elevate the individuals there because like what i would always say is well show me the person who is actually out there right now living a celibate life and seems really well balanced to you show me the person who and i don't want to like i don't want to throw all the you know like the side airs under the, the the bus here by any means um but I would when when you're talking to a straight person who has no uh, actual understanding of what it's like, I would say show me the 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 person show me the at least from the Catholic Church show me the the saint out there. We've got two thousand years. How is it that we had of of making gay people live these celibate lives? How is it that you don't have a single one that you can point to and say, but look how good it turned out when they did it? Like exactly. I would I would go and read all of these different um uh blogs often anonymous uh you know or pseudo uh name driven uh blogs of of gay catholics um lots of us have you know because people would bring up uh you know but there's you know look at so-and-so writer i was like all they do is write about how depressed they are all they do is write about how how hard and miserable it is like show me the beauty in it like yeah i it's sometimes sacrifices can be really beautiful but like Show me the side of it that seems that it's actually um, helping their life in any way. You know, it's really interesting you bring that up because then, on the other hand, I hear other celibate gay people being like, it's all roses and butterflies. And I'm like, no, you're you're objectively. And they're like, it isn't miserable for everyone. And I'm like, no, it read what read what they're saying. Listen to what they're saying. It is miserable. And. And you know what, what the, the moment, and this was when I was still in college, the moment when I realized I could not be celibate anymore, be committed to lifelong celibacy anymore, was when I read a piece by Wesley Hill, who is um he, he's i've talked about him before on the show he's kind of this and i actually really want to have wesley on the show so we can kind of hash this stuff out but um he's kind of the i guess a figurehead for the gay celibate thing in the church and he wrote a book called wash and waiting but i read an article by him where he talked about henry Nowen, the the great uh priest henry Nowen, and I love Henry Nowen, great writer, beautiful man, who was gay. And the torture 
that Henry Nouwen lived through was just unbelievable. And Wesley Hill was, was in a way kind of praising it. And he quoted a friend of Henry Nouwen who said of Nouwen, he chose to live the wound again and again and again. He chose to live the wound and not escape it. And that reading that was just quite simply when I broke. Hmm. When I when I looked at my life and I said, is this all I is this all I get? Really? Is this all I get? Is this to live the wound? To choose to live this wound over and over and over again. And by choosing to live the wound, I mean choosing to accept that I'm fundamentally broken in a way that other human beings aren't and that that means that I will be celibate for the rest of my life and I will not have a partner. I will not wake up with someone in the morning. I won't have someone to go to bed with at night. I won't have someone to come home to at the end of the day. I won't have that I won't have that deep partnership love that void filled in my life and you know it that was just quite simply when I broke and and despair flooded me and 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 I couldn't do it anymore and there were several moments like that but that was one that really stood out in my memory and and, and you know and, and not so much that you you won't have a partner but that you're incapable of, that you of are partnership yeah that you, you know, are sometimes i think sometimes i think about you know like what what would happen if or how would i react if an angel came down and you know showed up and you know did you know instead of a you know an abraham and sarah saying like hey you're gonna have a baby like what if they were like but so here's the thing with you you are never going to uh be allowed to fall in love and you're never going to have any kids and that's what we want for you that's your plan are you willing to do the sacrifice for god if that's what we think is best i'd be like i mean i'm sure, i don't know how i would react exactly now my faith is kind of pretty complicated but like it in the, in the <laughs> you and of me my, both <laughs> of my uh i think now i would try and make a deal but uh you know back in the back in the day i probably would have been like well okay you seem authoritative. If that's really what God, you know, wants from me, I'm all in. But that's not the option that we were we were given. Rather, it was being told that you are actually broken and incapable of a relationship. Not just that you yes. you won't get to have one for some unseen reason, um, but that you're not capable of romantic love, which is, is exactly. so much worse. It is so much worse. And then the response to this from many Christians is, well, then just let Christ fill that void or let friendships fill that void. Or even worse, why are you romanticizing sex? Is what you're saying, are you saying you can't live without sex? Are you saying you can't live without romance? Why are you romanticizing partnerships they are not the easy way out they're just as hard as celibacy and and to which i respond with something that a dear friend of mine said several years ago and this was when she was single she is she had been single her entire life and she desperately struggled with it and she's catholic 
And she one day she was she looked at me just in tears and she said, Stephen, I am ashamed when I take the Eucharist because I feel like that level of presence of Christ, that level of intimacy with Christ, and that level of physicality of taking the Eucharist into my own body, that that should satisfy my need for a husband, but it doesn't. And I still need a husband, and that doesn't, and I feel guilty. I feel shame because the church tells me it should, and it just doesn't. That's the reality. That's the way it is. And that that response that some people have of, well, you know, why don't you just let these other things, you know, fill that hole in your life, um, gets at the reason I, I wrote the article, which is, okay, you know, where where are these people? Um, yeah. They yeah, exactly. they've all they've all drifted away from my life, and I get I one hundred percent totally understand that we all have complicated lives and especially if you're adding a wife and kids your amount of time that you can spend on me is going to increase sorry decrease drastically um but all of them nobody is able to do more than every couple of months send a text message if if that and say hey we should you know catch up um that everybody has has moved on you kind of got to go, hey, it seems as though everybody is struggling with how to interact and and actually keep the gay guy a part of their lives. Um, because I, like, I, I get that it's complicated and hard to be told that you're supposed to keep me a part of your life. You're not supposed to discriminate against gay people. Um, but at the same time, we're these deeply flawed, deeply broken um, people. So, how do you, how do you say, you know, go to a gay person's wedding if you don't think that it's an actual wedding? Um, exactly. Yeah. How do you, how do you even just, you know, ask about how my partner is doing? You know, like yeah. just the basic empathy and support that you would show for any other friend uh you know how do you how do you show that to somebody that you think is is going against some of these most fundamental of god's laws right yeah exactly and and how do you do it in a sustainable way and that's really the question yeah. is i think that there are people who who can but over a lifetime of friendship no it's impossible i think it's impossible. Yeah, and, I, you know, and I, I have friends who will reach out to me, and, and and you know, especially like after this article, you know, came out, a bunch of people messaged me, and you know, we and we want you to know that we love you, and we, you know, we're we're here for you, and like, and I believe them when they say that they really do. Love absolutely. Me. Um, but uh, if their if their point was originally that we will we will be a you know our love will be enough for. Uh, to make up for the lack of a spouse, um, then you're you're gonna have to put in a little more time and effort um, than than supporting me after I I write an article that you know twinged your conscience a little bit. If you are going to say that your love for me as a friend 
will supplant the love that I am craving and possibly even needing from a spouse, you're going to have to put in a little more time and effort. There's a lot of people who will say, I would have said this to me 10 years ago. You know, okay, that kind of makes sense to say that, you know, maybe your friends won't totally supplant a spouse. But at the same time, your, you know, God will be enough. God will, uh, if you truly ask him to, God will, you know, uh, be enough for you to go on. Which is where I think we need to do a better job of speaking to the church as a whole and saying, okay, listen to us. It's not enough. It's not that we're not giving ourselves to God enough. It's all of us are coming back and saying, I can't keep doing this. Like, you're, first of all, we're dying. Like, there are way too many of us that are taking our, our own lives. Um, and second of all, why do you not believe us when, why do you not believe us when we come back to you and say, it, it's, it's not enough, I'm breaking down. Um, why is the, the universal response to that merely to, to shrug your shoulders and say, well, I guess you aren't trying very hard. I guess you don't have much faith then. I've, I've watched as, as this article that I wrote has gotten posted and, and, and debated in various, uh, especially kind of more conservative Catholic circles. Um, and the, the number one response to it is, you know, it's, it's too bad this guy doesn't know what he's talking about more. It's too bad that this guy doesn't really understand what the Catholic Church teaches. It's too bad that, you know, what we really need, what we really need is somebody, uh, we need to do a better job as a church to, uh, to educate these people into, you know, what the church really teaches. And I, I never responded to any of them, but in my head, I was just like, you arrogant motherfucker. Like, I'm sorry, but to say that to somebody who is so hurt and has given so much of their life to trying to do it the church's way and then come back and said, hey, can we talk about this? Because it's not working for me. And to just assume that your ability to explain things would fix it all is, is, is deeply arrogant. Where can people find you online if they want to read more of your stuff? Yeah, they can find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at P. Gothman. That's P-G-O-T-H-M-A-N. Um, on Medium, if you just search for Patrick Gothman, I'm sure you'll find some of my other writings on there. So, yeah, thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's been a blast. That's our show for today. If you love my work and want to check out more, please feel free to go to sbradfordlong.com, where I write at length about gay celibacy, and about mental health, LGBT issues, faith and doubt, religion, and all sorts of stuff that strikes my fancy. The music for the show is by the Jelly Rocks. The art is by Justin Caleb Bryant. Before I log out here, I just have a little request. If you really like this show and, and you're getting value from it, please write a kind review for me on iTunes or wherever you listen. That would be really, really helpful. It helped me get a wider reach, and it would it, if you love this and want to share it with other people, a really easy way to do that is to write a review. It makes it more accessible to everyone. So, 
I will see you next week.